It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we'll be learning about a new enzyme in the CRISPR toolbox and hearing how virtual chemistry might speed up drug discovery. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Listeners, I hope you'll join me in welcoming the newest member of the team, Nick Howe, for his debut in the hosting chair. Nick, hi. Hi, it's good to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. And Nick, tell us, what's your specialist subject? Well, Ben, I'm into all things bees. So my PhD was all about looking at how pesticides influence bees' ability to tolerate cold and also how they overwinter. Right. Well, I'm sure there'll be lots of opportunities to talk about that in the future. But today you're going to be telling us about something completely different, the world of mass chemical libraries and that's coming up in a bit in the meantime what do we have first on today's show well ben this week in nature there's a paper out about a new kind of crispr protein and this caught the eye of crispr fan Sharmini bundell she decided to give nature reporter heidi ledford a call to find out what this new protein is how it fits into the story of crispr so far and where the field of gene editing might be going here's Sharmini. so crispr is a gene editing technique that's become really popular in the last few years and you kind of hear about it everywhere and people are always crispering this and crispering that and finding ways to improve CRISPR. And now there's this new paper out from Jennifer Doudna at the University of California, Berkeley, along with various of her colleagues, about a new CRISPR enzyme that they've been studying. But before we sort of talk about what this new discovery is, um, could we maybe have a bit of a, a catch-up on on what CRISPR is exactly and, and, and go over some of the, the basics of how exactly it works as a gene editing tool? Yeah, sure. So CRISPR systems are found in nature. They're, they're used by microbes to defend against invading DNA. So when a virus enters the cell and starts to make copies of its genome, if the microbe has some sequence of that viral DNA stored in its genome in what's called a CRISPR array, then it might be able to recognize that foreign DNA and then direct an enzyme to it to, to slice it up and, and render it sort of inactive. So the bacteria has a little library that says, if you see this DNA, that's viral, go destroy it. And then the reason everyone's really excited about CRISPR and, and using it for gene editing is that particular ability to recognize 
bits of DNA, specific sequences. Yeah, that's right. Well, so microbiologists are excited about it because it, it's just cool. <laughs> you know, it's this microbial immune system and it's so complex and neat. But most people are excited about it for, for the reason that you mentioned, because researchers have figured out how to harness these systems and then to put them to work in, in other cells like human cells. Um, so that gives researchers a relatively easy way to, to make changes to DNA at, at particular sites. And we've actually got a, a 3D animation on the, the Nature Video YouTube channel. Oh, how cool. Which it's, it's really cool. It, it, so it shows a representation of the so-called CRISPR-Cas9 complex, which is made up of a guide RNA. And that's the bit that, that recognizes the sort of specific DNA sequence, whatever that might be. And then there's also the Cas9 enzyme. And that's the thing that cuts the DNA. And it, it's this cutting, which is the important bit for both the, the bacterial immune system and for scientists using it for gene editing, right? Yeah, that's right. So it cuts the DNA at that specific site where, you, you know, you tell it to, to cut. Um, and then after that, the DNA repair systems in the cell come in and repair it. And you can rely on those systems to either sort of make a small deletion at that site and maybe disable a gene if you wanted to knock it out, for example. Um, you can also try to manipulate it so that the DNA repair system inserts in a little sequence that you want in there. So CRISPR-Cas9 is, is the main sort of system that I've, I've heard about and it's, it's what that film is about. But it, it seems that, that Cas9, the sort of molecular scissors, isn't the only cutting enzyme that's part of CRISPR systems that, that we know of? So microbes have evolved all sorts of different variations on this CRISPR system, and they've got lots of different enzymes that can serve as the molecular scissors, as you said. Cas9 is a nice one for researchers to use. It's one of the first ones that they really characterized and were able to make work in a relatively simple way in lots of different kinds of cells. Um, but it's not perfect, you know, it's it's a bit large, um, which can make it difficult to shuttle into cells if you want to stick a Cas9 enzyme into a human cell. It's better if it's a little bit smaller. It can also make mistakes. Uh, it can it can make changes occasionally to sites that you didn't necessarily want it to. So what are our other options then? Uh, well, the paper that's coming out is describing in more detail a relatively new, well, new to us member of the family called CasX. Um, that one's a bit smaller, uh, so that makes it appealing, particularly for use as a human therapy. It may also be a bit less likely to make some of these unwanted changes, which would also be um, an advantage from a safety standpoint. And CASEX is the sort of, I guess, the latest one and the one that this particular new paper is about, but it's not the only alternative to Cas9, is it? That's right. So it's sort of been periodic. You know, there'll be a, another paper comes out, describes another enzyme and says, oh, nobody's going to use Cas9 anymore because we've got this new enzyme that's so much better. Um, and there have been several sort of iterations of that. I think um, one other one that comes to mind is one called Cas12a, which was also meant to be a bit smaller than Cas9. And there was some speculation that it might be better at making some of these true edits where you can essentially rewrite a sequence rather than just deleting a little bit out. There's another enzyme called Cas13, for example, that instead of cutting DNA, cuts RNA. So that would then allow researchers to control gene expression at a different level. Um, so it gives them, you know, a different range of things that they could do. And so are researchers looking for something better than Cas9? If Cas9 was just what they happened to discover first, are we searching for like the one Cas to rule them all? Yeah, we're always looking for something better. And the thing is, there's so many of these enzymes and so many variations on the system out there. So there'll be a whole big toolkit, I guess, of different enzymes that you can pick from. And as they become more characterized, you probably will see 
more labs using different enzymes. At the moment, you know, a lot of people really prefer Cas9 because it's the familiar one that is sort of the standard. But as people become more familiar with these other enzymes, I think you'll see more and more of them. So it's basically all CRISPR and it just, you could potentially be then picking the enzyme that happens to work for for the gene that you want to tweak or for the purpose that you want to do. Yeah, it's still fairly new. It's, you know, it's only been a few years since they really figured out how to use it for gene editing. And so they're still optimizing and figuring out which systems are best. And, you know, in addition to looking for these naturally occurring variations, people are engineering all sorts of things. You know, they're engineering Cas9 enzymes, for example, that uh, have other enzymes attached to them so that they can serve other functions and and make other changes to the genome. it's, It's all becoming quite sophisticated at this point. Um, And then also, you know, someday, as people continue to study these different sort of microbial systems, they may come up with something that's completely different. It's not a CRISPR system, but also works well for gene editing. And, you know, there may be new advantages and, and ways to use that as well. It's a very quickly changing field. That was Heidi Ledford chatting to Shamini Bundell about the CASX enzyme and the whole toolkit of CRISPR proteins. You can find the paper they discuss over at nature.com slash nature and you'll find the animation of CRISPR-Cas9 at youtube.com slash nature video channel or by searching for the film title CRISPR Gene Editing and Beyond. Coming up in the show, we'll be hearing about the rule changes in the UK's latest audit of academic research. That's coming up in the news chat. Before then, Anna Nagel is here with this week's research highlights. The ravers here at Nature love a bit of UV light. And it turns out that squirrels like to get in on the ultraviolet action too. A chance encounter in a Wisconsin forest between a researcher's UV flashlight and a New World flying squirrel revealed a hot pink hue in the creature's fur. The scientists then painstakingly directed their UV light at 135 museum squirrel specimens, and found that it was only the New World flying squirrel that glowed pink. Although many plants and animals sport dazzling fluorescent patterns only visible under UV light, it's rare in mammals, so quite why these squirrels sport a hot pink pelt is a bit of a mystery. The team behind the discovery think it might be to confuse predators, or possibly to help the animals find, and impress, each other in low light. Read that illuminating research in the Journal of Mammalogy. Lung cancer has been linked to chronic inflammation, but quite what the connection is between the two has been rather unclear. So scientists in the US turned to mice that had been genetically modified to develop tumours similar to a common form of lung cancer in humans. The researchers found differences in both the type and abundance of lung microbes found in the tumour-ridden mice compared to those that remained cancer-free. The microbes present in the cancerous mice boosted production of a type of immune cell that produces an inflammatory protein. But germ-free mice raised in a sterile environment didn't experience this, suggesting that the microbes were playing a key role in tumour development. Check out that research in the journal Cell. Discovering a new medical drug is a long and resource-intensive process. It can take a decade or more for the drug to go from the drawing board to the hospital ward, in a process that involves a huge number of researchers. But for every drug that makes it, 
Many more fall by the wayside in a process that costs billions of dollars. Naturally, researchers are keen to streamline and accelerate the discovery process in order to save money and time. One possible way to do this is by using computer simulations to screen early drug candidates. Whilst this technology has existed for some time, this week in Nature, there's a paper describing how size is important in the world of virtual screening. As Brian Roth from the University of North Carolina, one of the co-authors on the paper, describes. We were trying to basically see if we could enhance the process by several orders of magnitude, by speeding up the initial screening uh, process. The initial screen typically would take months and is usually limited to, say, 100,000 compounds to, to maybe a million compounds. Usually, the initial screening involves physically testing thousands of compounds. In this case, rather than testing the activity of a relatively small number of compounds against a particular drug target in the lab, the team used a virtual library, a catalogue of hundreds of millions of compounds. And so what we did here was we took advantage of a large resource of potential chemicals. Uh, these are chemicals that are theoretical in that they have, have not yet been synthesized, but could be uh, made by chemists using sort of common chemical reactions or typical chemical reactions. And this is using a resource called a zinc database, which was developed by my co-authors, uh, Brian Choiquet and uh, John Irwin at UCSF. And over the last few years, they've been able to increase the size of the zinc database to nearly a billion compounds, so a large number of compounds, so more compounds than one could ever physically screen. By using a lot of computing power, the team were able to virtually test the interactions of these compounds against a number of drug targets in a process known as automated docking. You might think that simulating more automated docking would slow down the discovery process. But Brian suggests that for a number of reasons, when it comes to virtual libraries, bigger is better. The main advantage of the large library is you get access to a large number of different uh, chemotypes, so these different molecules with different shapes. And it's, it's become clear over the past several years that if you have compounds that have unique shapes, then when they interact with the target, they're likely to have uh, interesting biological activities that never would have been predicted before and uh, ultimately could be therapeutic in ways that were previously unanticipated. By testing such a diverse array of chemical structures, including molecular shapes that are completely novel, the team were able to find interesting chemical reactions that haven't been seen before. And they were able to do it quickly. For example, in just over a day, the researchers were able to virtually test over 138 million compounds for their ability to dock with the dopamine 4 receptor, a drug target for treatment of diseases such as Parkinson's. The team also looked for inhibitors of a bacterial enzyme called ampicillin C, involved in antibiotic resistance. By screening 99 million molecules, they found some promising candidates. Out of these, they synthesised a very potent chemical that appears to have a completely new mechanism of action. And this is the proposed advantage of this technique, 
going from rapidly screening millions of compounds in the computer to then choosing a top list to synthesize and test in the lab. This approach could massively cut down on the time needed to identify early drug candidates. It turns out that that having this huge library really is a tremendous resource, basically, because you get access to this chemical space that there is no way to physically ever obtain. And it, and it turns out that that is a huge, huge advantage, one, one that we had not anticipated. We hoped it, we would get that, but we didn't, we didn't really anticipate just how valuable it was. Of course, there's a long way from discovering a chemical interaction to developing a drug for clinical use, but the time save could be incredibly valuable. David Glorium from the University of Copenhagen has written a News and Views article on this topic. He thinks that although virtual screening has been around for a while, there's a lot to appreciate in this new work. Well, their method, virtual screening, has been refined and applied for two or three decades now. But what is really setting their approach apart is their huge compound libraries that they screen. And uh, previously, this has not been possible because of computational limitations, and maybe for many groups because of licensing issues, the throughput of the software, um, but also the availability of these compound databases that just became available. Like with any developing technique, there are some caveats that need to be considered. For docking to work, you need to have well-modelled structures of targets, and even then, it will only work on molecules that contain particular binding sites that allow for the activity to be changed. David thinks that there are some other challenges of a less scientific nature too. As drug discovery is an expensive process, companies often seek unique compounds that they can patent and have exclusive rights to produce. The massive library in this paper, however, is open for anyone to use. Because many of these molecules are available open access, then it's the question of whether this would uh, restrict rights to having invented this molecule. There are indications that if you make compounds available on the internet, this could limit the, the possibilities to make the stronger type of patent. If the structures are freely available, then the question is whether you can claim to have invented the molecule, which is a requirement for the stronger type of patent. Without the security of a powerful patent, it's reasonable to ask whether drug companies would want to invest in drug discovery like this. Both David and Brian are confident that these challenges could be overcome. Also, as more drug targets are getting better described, this method could be applied more widely in the future. Right now, we can already start using this approach to look for novel drugs with the online SYNC15 database. You can read Brian's paper along with David's News and Views article over at nature.com slash nature. Lastly this week, it's time for the news chat. And Holly Else, one of the reporters here at Nature, joins me in the studio. Hi, Holly. Hi, Ben. Well, we've got two stories this week. And the first one is about the REF. And uh, this is a a regular review of science here in the UK. And when it's REF time, you get a lot of researchers chatting on Twitter about it. Holly, for our listeners maybe outside of the UK, could you describe what the REF is? 
Well, the REF is the Research Excellence Framework, um, and that's a mammoth audit that the higher education funding councils do regularly to assess the quality of research that's going on in UK universities. Well, if this is an audit, then what sort of things is it looking at? So it looks at lots of different things, the environment that the researchers work in in the university, also the research papers that they're producing, um, and also the impact of their work. So it will look uh, to see if there have been any changes on policy, for example, as a result of some research that's been going on at a certain institution. And uh, and I guess the next one must be coming up relatively soon, and that's why it's in the news today. Yeah, so the next one's in 2021. Um, and what's happened this week is the funding councils who administer the REF have released the rules for what each university will have to do for the next exercise. And, uh, and what will they have to do? And, and maybe how does it differ from what's gone before? One of the new rules is that all staff who work in research will be um, submitted for assessment. And this didn't happen in the previous REF, which happened in 2014. So universities could sort of select who they wanted to put forward to be assessed. And this led to sort of this frantic transfer market, a bit like football, where universities were trying to sort of poach the best staff in particular areas in order that they could take their research and then present it to the exercise to boost their scores. Which seems potentially disingenuous then, but maybe this this new system will give more of a level playing field? Well, potentially. It's also sort of designed to try and keep the costs down because the last exercise was particularly expensive, cost £246 I think, partly because universities spent so much time and money deciding who they wanted to submit to the exercise. Right. And, and, well, I mean, who's going to be happy about this then when 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 it happens? Are universities happy? Are researchers happy? No one's happy when it comes to REF. It's a lot of work. <laughs> uh, administrators spend their whole lives doing it. And the submissions, if you've ever seen one, they're just hundreds of thousands of pages long. Researchers often berate the bureaucracy of having to submit all these forms and fill in these things. But, you know, the other side of the coin is that this means that the research money in the UK has been spent wisely, some could argue. Well, let's move on to our second story today, Holly. And, uh, and this one is about some ongoing negotiations about access to journals. So it's been six months now since researchers in Sweden and most of Germany had the plug pulled on access to Elsevier journals. So that means that they are unable to view and download the most recent papers. So why has access to these journals been lost then? The university libraries no longer have a subscription with Elsevier because the one that they had previously has ended and no new agreement has been made in its place. So therefore, these countries are not paying Elsevier for their products. So Elsevier argue, why should we supply them to you? What's the state of the negotiations at the moment then, Holly? Is, is there a sort of particular roadblock that's, uh, that's preventing these journals being available? Yeah, so the university libraries in Sweden and Germany sort of uh, come together to create a collective, which means that they can negotiate with the publishers as one on behalf of the whole country. And what has happened is that the negotiators in these countries want to start paying less for their subscription fees because they are now increasingly publishing open access articles. And to publish open access, often you have to pay a fee to the publisher because the publisher will not get any revenue from subscriptions because this article is freely available. And so what these negotiators want to do is kind of incorporate those fees into the subscription costs. So they're not paying twice once to publish and then again to read if an increasing amount of the literature is available for free. And what's happening is Elsevier is not happy to do that. Um, Talks in Germany have been going on for years over this exact issue. 
and similar in Sweden. And so what effect is this having on on scientists, on research academics? Well, it's different for both countries. In Germany, because the university libraries didn't previously have a nationwide contract. They had individual contracts with each library. They're all being cut off at different rates. So within Germany, there are still a very small amount of institutions that do still have access. And so researchers in those countries are able to get hold of of the most recent papers by, you know, an interlibrary loan, for example. Um, So the situation perhaps there may not be as bad, but the researchers I spoke to in Sweden where all universities have no access to Elsevier, are really talking about how frustrated they are, how much extra time it takes them to get hold of a copy of an article that they need. So they might do this by ordering it from the library, who would then pay for it, or they might do this by emailing the authors of the study to ask for a copy. And obviously that all takes time. And in some cases, they still can't get hold of a copy. And then they have to try and find the information that they need from a different source, so maybe a different journal article. And they argue that, you know, when you're up against a deadline for your grant application or or your paper that you're writing, sometimes you just haven't got time to do that. So a lot of frustration out there, I think. What about the publisher themselves? What are they saying? They say they're really committed to finding a solution to this problem in Germany and Sweden. And as we mentioned, the talks are still ongoing. It's not clear what's going to happen. But what's happening in Sweden is the National Library of Sweden, who negotiate these deals, have been surveying their researchers to see how they're getting on without Elsevier. We don't know what they're going to find. They'll release the results later on this year. But I think that will be a really interesting thing to know, you know, because Sweden is the first country that's really gone through this. Well, thank you for joining us, Holly. And listeners, for more on these stories, head over to nature.com slash news. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast or on email podcast at nature.com. And listeners, it would be amazing if you could leave us some stars or a nice review wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Nick Howe. Thanks for listening. See you all next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.